Welcome to the Teachers Unified Podcast. I'm Sarah Lerner. In this extended episode, we'll hear from Reed Alexander. He played Neville Papperman on iCarly and has gone on to become a world-class professional journalist with Business Insider. He speaks about his experience as a child actor, how it led him to journalism, how journalism led him to cover the events at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in 2018, and why it's important to be a trauma-informed reporter. Welcome to the Teachers Unify podcast. I am joined by one of my very best friends, and I do not throw that term around lightly, Mr. Reed Alexander, who is not only a former child actor as Neville Papperman on iCarly, but is also an outstanding professional journalist, having studied at both NYU and Columbia University, not too shabby. So, Reed, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, gosh, Sarah, thank you for that really uh, delightful introduction. And it is true what you say. We are incredibly close. And you're one of my very best friends. So oh, you- stop. Your show is a great honor for me. And well, we thank actually you. know each other through journalism. And I hope we get to talk about that. But we've become really good friends outside. So I'm excited to be here for this discussion. Well, thank you. As I say every show, we always start with talking about our guests you know, your family, where you grew up, your childhood. So I would love for you to share with everyone what all of that was like. Certainly. Well, I'm originally from South Florida, uh, from Boca Raton. I was born there. I went to Pinecrest School for many years. Before that, I went to Ready, Set, Grow Elementary School. Um, My parents uh, moved from Long Island, New York many years ago. They are attorneys and they both have law practices in Florida. So I grew up here as an only child, you know, in the home of two lawyers who were really analytical people, smart people. And I was around at the dinner table, you know, adult conversation and conversation about world affairs and world business, things that impacted their practices. When I was very, very young, my mother was a prosecutor before going into private practice and doing uh, real estate and wills, estates and trusts, class actions. My dad was a business litigator who would work on mergers and acquisitions and defend people in the courtroom. So I was exposed to serious topics that I think instilled in me a sense of civic service and passion for the world that you know we now see having manifested in my pursuit of journalism. But when I was young... And we'll get more into this, you know, growing up in Pinecrest School and being in Boca, my chosen after school activity was the theater club. And uh, ironically, Ariana Grande, whom I went to school with and later worked with on Nickelodeon, was one year ahead of me and we were in the club together and we did a lot of performances. And I think being part of that drama club showed me that I love being, you know, on stage. Anybody who knows me knows that I certainly could talk and I could certainly project naturally. Uh, But I really felt that I was at home in front of an audience and I tried to live a life of some sort of public facing consequence, whether it was as an actor or now as a journalist with an audience of readers that I'm trying to inform. But it started there in Boca and it led me to some really amazing places. So that's a little bit about my childhood. Completely unrelated for for the listeners. My students are obsessed with Reed. And anytime I mention his name or they were friends, they just freak out. You know Neville? I'm like, yes, I know Neville. And, you know, when you've come in to talk to my classes, and we'll get into this a little more later, I sit there and I listen to you and you're so eloquent and you just share so much knowledge and insight and experience with them. But it's so cool to have them listen to you, not just as an actor, but as an actual like real life working professional journalist and how you were able to bridge that gap and make that transition and the impact that you're having in the journalistic world is quite outstanding. But I will say I am probably the coolest teacher at school in the kids' eyes. I'm not, but we can pretend because because I know you and bringing you as my prom date has been 
a bit of all right. That was a blast. It um, was. Yeah, talk a little bit about that because that was a really important night for me. But first of all, let me say a few things. You are the coolest teacher in school because you are you. <laughs> and you are pretty cool in and of yourself. And Thank it's been you. a great honor for me to get to know you and to be brought into your life and meet your kids, your husband, your parents. I mean, your family are such gems and it doesn't surprise me that you are the way you are because you're all really big hearted. So it's been a great privilege for me to have gotten to know you. Um, and certainly you've been there for me as a friend and I hope that I've been able to be there for you as a friend. Um, but it means a great deal that your students uh, watch the show, hopefully both shows, the original show and the new show. And also have an interest in our shared passion, which is storytelling and journalism. And now as an educator myself who teaches college, you know, I have even more respect for the degree of service and investment you make in your students' lives. And I've found it really satisfying to come every year and get to talk to them a little bit about my life as a, you know, professional practitioner of this craft and hopefully, you know, uh, just amplify the spark that you're leaving in so many of them to want to pursue this because, you know, it really is the most satisfying and fulfilling, you know, calling and mission, I think, to be a journalist. That's what I really believe. I agree, which is why I do what I do. Okay, iCarly ends. You go to college so I know I already mentioned where you went, but tell me about college and all of your post-college professional experience. Yeah, for sure. So when I Carly concluded, I went to New York University. I had always known that I was going to be doing that, um, you know, even when the original show was on. A lot of actors don't, you know, actors in their teenage years or their high school years, they go and get, you know, the GED and they stay actors. And, you know, that just wasn't what I wanted to do. I was not sure if I would go back to acting at that point, but I was fairly confident that I wouldn't. Not because I didn't like it. I absolutely loved it. It's just there were parts of the lifestyle that weren't for me. You know, the craft of acting is a really cool thing to do when you're on set reading lines. But, you know, driving around L.A. and auditioning, that just wasn't a life that I thought that I'd really thrive in. So I went to college, but I thought I would study uh, journalism because I had developed an interest for it. And I'll tell you how. But my plan B was if I didn't like journalism in that first semester or two, I thought, well, I could always pivot and go back to, you know, screenwriting or studying filmmaking in some way, shape or form. I really didn't think I needed to study the dramatic arts as an actor because I had had so much private training from acting coaches over the years. And it's kind of a learn by doing thing. But I thought I could learn other parts of the entertainment industry and maybe I would, you know, just build a life there. But I took this chance to major in journalism because when I was on the original show, I was traveling overseas a lot for work and I fell in love with watching CNN International and BBC World News and Sky News and watching these international news channels and developing an interest in global affairs made me think, well, maybe having a front row seat to world events as a journalist would be a really great profession for me. And I was thinking at that time, more broadcast journalism, even though I'd been able to move into this role more as a writer, if anything. But I went to college and I thought, let me major in journalism and I'll decide in that first year if it's for me. You know, it turned out that I absolutely loved it. So now the show had ended. It was 2013, 2014. I was living in New York, going to NYU loving what I was studying. And I thought, you know, let me keep going with this. So I did a lot of different kinds of classes. I did some, you know, early career newsroom internships. And then I moved to Hong Kong in my final year of undergrad. And I started working for CNN International and I started writing for CNN. I went over to Hong Kong because I had loved the Hong Kong Bureau uh, when I was just a viewer of CNN International and some of the shows that they were producing there, like Newsstream, World Business Today, uh, you know, these were great shows that I really just soaked up. But I had also been to Asia and I was fascinated by Asia, by China, by Japan, North Asia, later South Asia that I got to go totally changed my worldview. And as somebody who grew up going to Western Europe quite a lot, I thought, 
you know, if I go and work there, that's not going to be really the kind of eye-opening transformative experience that I want to do. I'd studied there in college abroad in Italy, and I've, you know, just been going to, you know, the United Kingdom since, you know, probably 20 years, and, you know, spent a lot of time in Italy now. So I thought, let me really go out on the edge and go to a different part of the world that I don't know. And that was the best decision I could have made because I came back with new friends and expanded worldview uh, and a lot of stories that I had written, you know, a really great portfolio of stories that I had done. And it showed me that like writing and the journalistic process of spending a lot of time on a story and being able to sometimes spend maybe not just hours, but days or weeks and really get to know sources and develop those long strung out relationships was a unique way of telling stories that really worked for me, even more so than being like a visual kind of storyteller with a camera and editing things on a computer. So I kept going with that. Um, and then there's a brief intervening period where I came back to the States and entered the workforce. And we can come back to that too. But just to fast forward a little bit, I did end up going back to graduate school. Uh, I had been an editor for a little bit after college. And I think when you edit and you're like leading people that are writers, you can easily see what you don't know and how much more you need to learn. So the job of editing was great training for me. But I said, you know, I do think I need more schooling. And I went back to Columbia and I got my master's in journalism from Columbia University. And pretty much immediately after graduating in 2020 during the pandemic, uh, four years ago, I joined my current organization, Business Insider. And I got to tell you, I think I'm going to be here for the long haul because this is such a special place to work. We met when you were in gra finishing grad school. Before we get into all of that, because that's coming up. How do you feel that your experience in acting helped you in your reporting? Or do you feel it did? That's a good question. Absolutely. You know, every single day. Uh, people ask me this sometimes, you know, did your past life inform your current one? I will answer it in two ways. Uh, the first answer is maybe not exactly the answer you're looking for. You're looking for like the functional aspects of my job that I took from acting that have made me a better reporter. And I will answer that too. But I also want to say, I don't think I'd even be a reporter if not for that chapter. I'm a big believer that, you know, things happen to you and opportunities or people are sent to you and you don't always know why. But, you know, acting was an amazing chapter in my life and it gave me a great springboard for, you know, anything I wanted to do. And I feel very blessed to have been part of iCarly, not just once, but twice. But it also like led me here because it put me around so many reporters from a young age, giving interviews and, you know, going on the Today Show, you know, 15 times and Good Morning America and CNN in this country and CNN International globally and going on the BBC and going on Sky News, all those networks that I loved as a kid. You know, I did all of them. And when I was around journalists or talking to print reporters, whether it was at People Magazine or the Associated Press, I always thought, you know, gosh, they just have the coolest job in the world because when they're done listening to my boring story, you know, they actually get to go out and talk to astronauts and teachers and doctors and other kinds of people, public officials, celebrities, but even more interesting than people who are in the public eye, they get to like track down people who aren't. And they have the privilege of getting to know these people in a really intimate way. And from a human interest perspective, or kind of a humanist perspective, it just seemed like the most energizing and fulfilling job. And I just don't think that I would have figured that out if I hadn't been an actor. I don't know what I would have done. Most likely, I would have followed my parents' footsteps and become an attorney. And to be honest with you, I think I would have done fairly well at that. A lot of journalists and a lot of writers consider law school. And I did consider it too, even after iCarly, because, you know, it seemed like a good decision. Given that 80% of my family are in that profession, it seemed like it, you know, was a logical next step. Nobody was in journalism. So I really had to figure this out on my own. But how did acting help me become a better reporter? It's in the small, subtle things. You know, when I interview people who are often, you know, tough people, these are corporate leaders or people who have been through any number of traumatic situations or public officials and Congress people that I've talked to over the years, you know, or people who are experiencing all manner of catastrophes and war zones, you know, you really need to project confidence and strength. And if you don't, people tend to like not take you very seriously and think, why am I giving this person my time? And people's time is limited. So I have become, I think, able to project confidence and strength 
even in situations where I don't feel it, going into conversations where I know very little about the subject or very little about, you know, what the person may be doing because it's some arcane esoteric part of business or what have you. And I don't fully get it, but I want to project that I do. I know how to carry myself. I know how to poise or how to pose, I should say, questions with poise, but how to pose questions in a way that make people feel that I'm projecting some sense of authority. I also have been on the opposite end of this. A lot of journalists have never really been interviewed by anyone or, you know, maybe they were for like the high school paper, but that was the only experience they had. You know, I've spent most of my life talking to people and facing a degree of public scrutiny, literally now the majority of my life. I, you know, I'm 29 and I got on the show when I was 12. So, you know, 16, 17 years ago, that's more than 50% of my time here. I have spent having to carry myself a certain way and behave in a professional way and field questions from people. I also know, therefore, when you're talking to a reporter, what kind of ticks can be irritating, you know, about, I, I don't think any question should be off limits, but I know when reporters behave in a certain way that is off-putting or makes me kind of shut down and makes it harder for them to do their job because then maybe they haven't gotten the kind of intel they were hoping to get. So it's in the subtle ways that having been an entertainer and a performer and an actor helped me to do what I'm doing now. It certainly helps me when I do television segments these days as a journalist or when I host anything for Business Insider. I'm very comfortable in front of the camera. But it's the other thing that you have to understand is being an actor, I always would say to people, emotional spectrums are like a pie. And your job as the actor is to carve out these thin little slices of the pie of your emotional spectrum as a person and tap into that depending on the role that you're experiencing at the time. Playing Neville was always the zany, you know, whimsical character. So maybe there was less of that. But if you look at the kind of work that people like Meryl Streep or Tom Hanks are doing, you know, they're really digging deep into slices of their emotional spectrum that maybe they've never had to access before in their own life, but the character they're playing did. So they have to know themselves very, very well. As a storyteller, drawing out human color from people in experiences that I've never personally experienced, like when I was interviewing people in Ukraine the week that Russia invaded Ukraine in 2022, I have to be able to access those slivers of my emotional spectrum to understand where they're at in their experience and then how to convey that to the reader in the most powerful way that I can. And having thought like an actor and been an actor has really equipped me with the tools and the paintbrushes in my arsenal to bring some of those stories to life with great color and pigment and detail. So, you know, that's how I think about it. I don't even have a follow-up for that because that was just so good. Going back to your time at Columbia, which is when we met, I would like to know, because I don't know all of this actually, you covered MSD for an assignment that you had. Right. I want to know... How the story came about, what was it like talking to all of us? How did covering MSD help to shape your reporting style? You know, because you grew up not far from the school. How did it all come to be? Yeah, um, we may have to break this down into multiple component parts because there's a lot to say uh, on this particular topic. I'm very passionate about it. And the story of Parkland to this day, six years later, it's, I cannot believe it's going on. I know. I can't, I'm sure if I can't believe it, I'm sure you can't. I'm sure you certainly can't believe that uh, it's nearly it, the sixth anniversary. It feels like six minutes. It feels like six years. It feels like 600 years. It just depends on the day. But it when this airs, it will be after the yeah. six-year mark. And I just can't wrap my head around it either. It really is unbelievable to me because I remember the day, uh, the Valentine's Day of 2018, what I was doing, you know, this all goes back to the first journalism job I had after Hong Kong. So I was working at Dow Jones, which is like the Wall Street Journal and Wall Street Journal Digital Network. And I was part of a team that's now Market Watch, which is the Wall Street Journal's, you know, daily business site. And we were sitting on the third floor of the Wall Street Journal building. So this is 1211 6th Avenue, 48th Street at 6th. And I was walking back from the back of the office where we had like journalism supplies. And I have always been, I don't know about you, but I suspect you're like me, just like a big like notebook user, you know, writing things down in notebooks. And I actually, 
don't keep as many as I should. I tend to use notebooks and jot things down and then move on to the next notebook. And I was always going through these steno notebooks, you know, these long kind of spiral notebooks uh, in the office. And I would have like a big pile of them next to my computer and I was using different ones for different things. So I had come from the back of the office where I was like fishing out, you know, some steno notebook from somewhere. And I was walking back and over our desks, we sat at these long uh, sort of row like desks that were, you know, like one row would be one team, another row would be another team. We had TVs hanging and they were always set to CNN. And it said breaking news. There was a school shooting in South Florida. Now, at this point, you know, it was six years after Sandy Hook. We had been through any number of terrible, you know, school shooting tragedies in high schools and elementary schools and universities. It's never dulled the shock for me. I mean, even, you know, this week when we see school shootings going on to this day, they're still happening. It's always really sickening to see, you know, and you immediately think about, you know, young people scattering and, you know, just terrified and who jumped in the way to save someone. You just think about these horrible things. And I thought, oh my gosh, like this is South Florida. That's where I'm from. I wonder if we know anybody. Listen, Sarah, you know well, New York City and South Florida, they feel like the two smallest towns in America. You know, Absolutely. Everybody. And I had never been to Douglas as a kid, but I had certainly been to Parkland and we knew a lot of people who were going to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. So when it became clear that that was the school, I thought, oh my gosh, like, my aunt is friendly with, you know, somebody that she knew from high school who has a son in MSD and what happened to him, you know, it was just, it was the fog of war, you know, so I'm sure I'm telling you nothing you don't already know having been there and lived it, but I'm just telling you my experience, you know, 1300 miles away in New York. So I was pulled onto this team that was reporting on what was going on. It was like by choice. And I said, I want to help with Parkland. I'm not far from there, I'm from that area. Let me make some calls. And it also spoke to my interest in covering breaking news and world affairs. Yeah, I think there's like some people that just have a calling to do some things in life. Some people become firefighters. Some people become local law enforcement. Some people become doctors or they go and work for Medicine Sans Frontier, you know, Doctors Without Borders. People do all different things. For me, it was always information. You know, that was my sense of duty, that when something was happening, I felt this sense of like, I've got to be on the front lines and I've got to be getting information and passing it on to people. That was how I felt I could contribute. The first thing I did was to try to find voices from inside that community that were pursuing some sort of activism. As you well know, within the first couple of days, you know, there were early signs that students were organizing themselves, but, you know, nothing had become clear what they were going to do. It ultimately evolved into the March for Our Lives and this big national effort. But within those first three to four days, it was a lot of people posting on social media and figuring out how they could try to help or doing local speeches, uh, you know, in Fort Lauderdale and Broward. And so I had found a student through Family Connections, who went to Cypress Bay, which you know is the high school not terribly far from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. And I think you guys play each other, you know, in some team sports. And this student was organizing a walkout of 5,000 students at Cypress Bay. And he had had several Douglas students come and say remarks, and some of them had lost loved ones. So we had him talk to me and put together this kind of first person piece that was a very powerful piece in his voice and with his story. And that was the first thing I did about Parkland. And that was an all day affair a few days after the shooting where I was in the newsroom in New York. And I remember talking to his principal and I said, please let Devin, his name was Devin Stoloff, spend the day with me on the phone. We got to get this story out. And, you know, the principal was kind enough to let him do it. And it was a really powerful story. And then I walked out into the street and this was the end of my day now. And I hadn't even like collected my stuff. It was spread out all over the newsroom. And I walked into the street. And you know what, Sarah? I started to cry. I started to cry because it was a very grueling day for me hearing about this person's experience in activism. And he obviously wasn't even in the school, but he was organizing people and trying to inspire the country and one of those early people from the area that was saying like enough is enough and it was a really important lesson in 
any kind of trauma journalism work that you need to remember you're exposed to people and you are having them recount things to you that are so raw and sensitive. So it could certainly re-traumatize them and it can also pass some of that trauma onto you as the reporter. Everybody needs to be mindful of everybody in this ecosystem, but the reporter is kind of carrying the weight of thinking about how the person they're talking to, the subject of their interview is coping with opening these wounds. The reporter also needs to be thinking, I got to check myself. How my, How's my mental health doing? And, you know, then I went upstairs and collected my stuff. Now, that was the first time I covered Parkland. And I'll stop there to answer, you know, any questions you have before we fast forward on to how we know each other two years later from graduate school. But that was where my interest began. I never stopped watching Parkland after that. I never, I never, I never detached from the story after that. It's interesting that you say, you know, the reporter needs to be mindful of the subject and mm -hmm. also themselves. Yeah. I found that, and I have said this in a number of interviews and a bunch of occasions, there are journalists who are just in it for like the sensationalism. You know, it's like people who rubberneck when there's a car accident on the highway. Like they just want to be nosy and a yenta and like see what's going on. And I know that the 14th was Ash Wednesday. I'm Jewish and I, you know, certainly don't participate in the holiday, but a number of parents had gone to church and had the ashes on their forehead when they picked up their kids as they were being released from school that day. And as a journalism teacher and a journalist, I understand their need to do their job, but I felt that some of the images that were captured that day as the parents were hugging their students with the ashes on their forehead, as the tears are flooding out, I just felt that it was like insensitive and obtrusive. And within hours, because I left school, I was released around 5.30. And by 7.30, CNN had converged on our school at, along with local media, other national media, it was difficult to watch in part because it was my school and like I was literally just there a few minutes ago. But I don't know that trauma informed reporting or trauma sensitive reporting was something that was talked about or widespread prior to us. And, you know, I'm not saying that we like invented it, but, you know, outside of people who cover war zones and things like that. I don't think that a lot of, you know, stateside reporters are were at least trauma informed or trauma sensitive. So I think a lot of the questions that were being asked and the manner in which they were being presented wasn't really, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, but wasn't really, I guess, sensitive to us, which I imagine could have had a negative impact on the reporter's mental health, if you're not thinking about us as the subject, how can you possibly be thinking about yourself as the reporter? A lot to think about there. Let me let me kind of break it down into how I think about this. You know, you do have a job to do, and the job is to inform. And everything starts from the origin of this event that we've decided we're going to cover, we have deemed is newsworthy. You know, it fits the kind of values of news that we think are relevant to our readers or our viewers or whoever is consuming this information. So we have a job to do. We now need to go and inform. But, you know, you're not like descending into battle, you know, and wiping out, you know, anybody who is there on the beach because you crash landed and you've got your camera, you have to start recording. You really do have to think about when you enter into these systems, you know, and they are systems, they are ecosystems, they are communities, they are systems of people that are interacting and component parts. And, you know, systems often change. And particularly in those early hours after a traumatic event, there's a lot of disruption that's going on. You need to try to remind yourself as a reporter, how am I going to minimize harm here? And I find that that's both practical and it's ethically right. You know, we used to have this ethics class in Columbia Journalism School, which, you know, I want to talk more about what I was doing 
vis-a-vis Parkland there and before I went to graduate school because I did a whole lot more. But in this ethics class that we would take, which was taught by an absolutely brilliant professor, Bruce Shapiro, who I am in touch with to this day, and he leads our DART Center for Journalism and Trauma. So this is kind of a thought-leading resource in our country and really globally on this particular topic. And he spends a lot of time talking to trauma-informed clinicians and psychiatrists and psychologists and looking at patterns around substance use behavior and addictive behavior. And he's just a really brilliant person, you know, that I suggest that anybody try to get in touch with or read his work and his, you know, his, his, his thinking around trauma journalism, this is work you want to do. But he would repeat this really important refrain, we're here to minimize harm in our reporting process. I would add to that to maximize public benefit. We want to go somewhere to maximize, we're, we're, we're doing this in the public interest. And I would also argue that people in a lot of these communities want people to know what is going on for two reasons. One is because I'd be willing to bet people in Parkland wanted to prevent another tragedy from this like happening again, wanted to get resources and support from local government and the federal government and NGOs and, you know, the private sector as much as the public sector to get support for the sort of rebuilding effort. The only way you do that is by letting people know what's really going on. So there is a practical benefit for people in the community to want to get their story out. There is a practical benefit for reporters going in to minimize harm and maximize storytelling in the public interest and behave in an ethical way. And that practical benefit is so people actually want to tell you things. You know, human beings can see what's going on. And when they see a reporter who's opportunistic or preying upon a young person who's not accompanied by a guardian or chasing a family down the street, you know, and to be clear, I don't know if this happened in Parkland, but it wouldn't surprise me if it did when that family maybe expressed that they weren't interested in talking, you know, nobody's going to trust that reporter. Nobody's going to look at them and say they exemplify, you know, the best of journalistic integrity and human behavior. So let's go and tell them our story. You know, when you're entering into a situation, and I don't mean to make light of it, but you know, it's sort of, it's, it's amazing to me. I see these reporters and it's not funny. Uh, who are going into these communities and behaving in such a disruptive and destructive way and expecting that, you know, they're going to get anything. I don't know how they do get anything they can really use because I don't know who's talking to them or wants to engage with them. And I also don't think it's really something that I'd feel very good knowing that I went in and, you know, made somebody cry or opened old wounds for the benefit of, you know, public, uh, you know, uh, consumption or getting clicks or getting views. I don't think anybody wants to really be operating that way. But I've always looked at it as I do have a job to do. I am going to ask some uncomfortable questions. I'm going to do the best I can do to use certain techniques to soften the blow to the point that I can develop trust and develop rapport with the person. And if somebody makes clear that they don't want to talk, you know, I might explain to them why I think it would be beneficial if they did give me the benefit of their time. But look, if somebody's putting up a boundary, I'm going to respect it and I'm going to move on and try to find other people that, you know, are perhaps more forthcoming. But we all have to remember that we're all people and we all suffer and we all feel things. You know, we need to be mindful of that when we enter into these uh, spaces that, uh, you know, probably aren't seeking us out being there and certainly aren't having sought out being in the position that they're in. You know, nobody at Parkland was like happy to have the media attention that day. Um, You know, there are things we can do as journalists to explain better why we are there and how it could possibly help and to try to minimize harm for those that uh, are experiencing it. You're absolutely right. And I mean, for me, at least, there was a reporter the day after um, we had parked pretty far from um, where the event was happening. But there was an event, a vigil at uh, Pine Trails Park, which is about a mile ish from school. And this reporter from a local newspaper was like chasing us down wanting to talk to us. And it was me and two other teachers like chasing us down and wanting to talk to us. And I at first politely said no. And he persisted. And then my queens came out. I wasn't too nice. May have used a couple of colorful words. 
But <laughs> something that Queens, where are you from? I'd like to know this. I don't know. Uh, Fresh Meadows. My mom <laughs> is from Far Rockaway. My dad oh. is from Long Island. Um New Yorker, my friend. I am you can take the girl out of New York, but you never take the New York out of the girl. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So something that impressed me immediately when you and I met, and this will kind of bring us back to your story um, while you were at Columbia, mm-hmm. was not only how like kind and thankful, you know, to me for doing appreciative is the word I'm looking for, for sitting down and doing this interview, like you probably thanked me at least 20 times. But you know how professional and sensitive you were. And I know now and I believed at the time that, you know, everything you were asking and your interest in what I was saying was genuine. And it wasn't just being a nosy yenta wanting to like, you know, get the scoop on what happened. There was a real curiosity and journalistic purpose to what you were doing. And I know you spoke to a number of teachers. So how did that story come about? Like, what was it like talking with us? Well, it was, you know, really impactful and consequential for me. First of all, you know, thank you for recognizing that because I'm glad that that came through and the motivation there really was genuine. So let me back up a little bit. You know, after Parkland uh, originally, you know, 214, and this is, you know, obviously 2018, um, the next year I found myself in a new job, uh, which, so I had left Dow Jones because I got this great opportunity to be an editor uh, at a trade publication. In the case of my trade, we were looking at mental health. So that meant doing a lot of stories around researchers. And some of them were like kind of dry and boring around like new mental health studies that were coming out or, you know, new areas of academic exploration around cognitive development, whatever. But a lot of them were also human interest stories. And I became very interested in trauma recovery. And I was also interested for my own reasons, just my own curiosity and something that I didn't know much about, which was substance use disorder and how fascinating that whole world is and how connected it is to people that have experienced some sort of terrible trauma in their past that might have led them to start experimenting with substances and, you know, sent them down a difficult road. And I was really inspired by people who had overcome trauma. And I just thought that survivors of substance use disorder who were in recovery or survivors of traumatic experiences were typically some of the most amazing people that I had come across. And I was very passionate about us as a team reporting heavily on this. We had a digital publication and we had a print magazine and I was very serious about it. And we did a lot of work on trauma reporting. So one of the things that I had done toward the end of my time at that publication, before I went to graduate school, was to organize a panel in Palm Beach which was on adolescent mental health. And I really wish I knew you at the time. I would have loved for you to have been there. This was five years ago. You know, it was July, 2019, right before I started at Columbia, which I put together this panel. And there were two March for Our Lives original organizers there. One gave a keynote speech and one was on the panel with me. Then there was the vice chancellor of NYU, who actually now is a remarkable person. Linda Mills has become the first woman president of New York University, but, you know, she was kind enough to fly in to be on this panel. So that was Linda Mills. And then there was an Emmy award-winning documentarian on the panel. There was uh, emergency response therapist, a trauma therapist who had gone out to Parkland. And the year before in 2018, she had been organizing uh, teacher groups, like grief and mourning kind of groups for teachers. So it was this really powerful panel and it was heavily focused on recovery in Parkland. And uh, that was the first thing that I had done in like after Dow Jones and a year later to really stay with the Parkland story and through these activists that had been on my panel that I moderated. And to be clear, it was a totally nonpartisan panel. This was not like, you know, activist journalism. This was really just a serious discussion about the mental health crisis among young people in our country and what we needed to do. And I thought it made sense in our community to bring on, you know, young people who had survived and were in Broward County and had seen firsthand what the local government response had been like. After that, I got to graduate school. And when the time came for us to choose our 
big project. The way it works at Columbia is you have a thesis project. So you've got to choose an investigative topic and you spend six to eight weeks working almost exclusively on that before your spring semester starts. So it's like over the holidays or winter break, you're really knee deep in working on this. And then once your spring semester starts, you keep chipping away at your master's project, your master's thesis. So it took me a little bit of time to figure out what mine should be. It wasn't so easy. At first, I thought I was going to look into university mental health services at college campuses and how they were really underserving their students. That was like this theory of mine. Um, you know, that didn't really pan out. I couldn't get any solid leads. I thought about doing something in Hollywood. And I thought maybe I'd go out there to LA during winter break and do some, you know, boots on the ground reporting. And then one night I was like, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And then it just came to me. And then I was like, Parkland, this story that I've been so fascinated by at this point for two and a half years that had stayed with me, I felt so connected to the story. And I say to people all the time as a journalist, there are going to be a few stories in your life that will just be definitive stories for you, defining moments or stories of consequence that, you know, change you as a reporter. Parkland was one for me. Uh, there have been others, but certainly Parkland is up there in like, let's say the top three, if not the top, you know, one, it like changed my whole journalistic worldview. And what I proposed to my editor, who was my professor at the time, was that I should go down to Parkland and I should meet with teachers and I should profile the teachers who had emerged as what I called the unofficial social workers or what my editor and I used to call the pillars of strength for students who had survived the shooting and were still in the school. So these were, you know, teachers who were not equipped to be mental health providers, but had to keep their students going in the face of this unimaginable tragedy. Um, but that was, that was the idea. And then I set out, this was before COVID, January 2020, to actually do that and execute upon that idea that we'd had. I can't imagine how covering what happened here wouldn't change you. And I, I know you've covered other big traumatic things, um, which, you know, we can get to. How many of us did you talk to? Do you remember? Oh, a lot of people. I, I profiled six teachers. I probably spoke to, you know, at least half a dozen more. So let's say 10 to 12 teachers, but six were the subject of profiles and six were sort of supportive voices and at least 18 to 20 students, you know, because if you're going to profile teachers, you obviously have to be talking to people that they've taught. And then aside from students, I spoke to loved ones of students who had passed away. And that was probably another, you know, seven or 10. Um, so I don't actually know the total number of sources, but it wouldn't shock me if it was close to three dozen on that project. Yeah. I can't imagine how many hours it took you in total to do this, because when we sat there in that Starbucks in January, it I mean, we were there for like two or three hours, we maybe four hours. <laughs> we hours. No, 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 I really think it was four hours. Yeah. yeah. You know, several lattes later, we had this interview. I mean, the 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 manpower and the hours and the questions and the listening and then the transcribing and everything that you did, I'm sure it was difficult to listen to the stories and the responses in person, but then to have to go back and listen to it again to construct these profiles and these, you know, the ancillary stories that are anecdotes that would go along with it. You know, I know what it's like to have lived through it. And I edited Parkland Speaks, which is a collection of stories from students. So I have read and edited and, you know, rinse, lather, repeat for those. I can't even imagine because I know some of the teachers you spoke to and I know some of the students and while all of our experiences, we all experience the same thing all of our experiences were different. And I, I don't know, you deserve some kind of kudos for, for all of that work. I hope you got an A on your paper, because that's a lot of hours and work and, you know, just mentally taxing 
on you, I'm sure. Well, it was, but you know, you have to remember that it's a real privilege when people are letting you into their homes and their lives. And, you know, some teachers did let me into their homes and you certainly did. And some people, you know, were maybe not as forthcoming, but were willing to get on the phone or whatever. You know, when people are answering your questions and they're talking about things that they probably don't want to go back to and they're doing you a favor, you know, that is something you got to be grateful for. And I was really, really grateful for the access that I got from that community. The access that I got said to me, like it implied something to me, which was that a lot of people felt either unseen or unheard or heard, but heard for things they weren't really saying or misrepresented. And they were like so eager to two years later get a different story out that hadn't been told. And I think that's why so many people from Eagles Haven to MSD to, you know, Ashley Kurth, who invited me into the school and, you know, walked me through in the rooms where students were taking shelter, you know, whilst the gunman was, you know, running rampant. I mean, it said to me that people were so eager to get another message out that maybe had not been fully processed or understood or heard in those early days. And I was grateful that as a graduate student, you know, they had confidence in me and entrusted me to be a carrier of that message. Now, I don't think I'm a spokesperson for anyone. It's never how I've approached my journalism uh, or a carrier of water for anyone's message, but you do want to respect the sanctity of what somebody's words mean and what they want readers to understand and what they're authentically saying. And it just said something profound to me that so many people were saying, you know, come in and come and tell this story. And yes, we want to help you. And when they would hear my vision for the story, which was this series of profiles that I was telling you on these six teachers, and you were obviously one of them, alongside people like Jeff Foster and Ernie Rosbierski and Kim Krawcheck and people that I just really got to know the goal was to paint pictures of who these, so I, well, I'll tell you how I started. I started the process by asking students, you know, who's been there for you? Who do you go to? Who do you sit in the lunchroom with? Like you would have in your classroom during lunch break, people come in. Who are you going to after school? Who is most attuned to how you're feeling? And the same names kept coming up. The same names kept coming up. Sarah Lerner, you know, these other names I mentioned over and over again. I said, well, I got to reach out to these people. And I remember reaching out to you and you were really willing to get on the phone with me and listen and give it a shot. And, um, you know, after I had done that and I was putting the story together, it was hard work, but I don't think I would have chosen any other kind of topic. You know, I will always be thankful that I got to tell that story for graduate school because it felt like it rose to the level of consequence that the story I wanted to do for one of the most important stories I will ever do, which was the story that helped me graduate with a master's degree with honors at Columbia, was a story of this degree of consequence. If it was a throwaway story or, you know, I was writing about, you know, some cultural thing somewhere, there's always going to be time for that in your career. But this is like a story that's kind of a coming of age, rite of passage that you're graduating. You want to give it your all. You want to give everything you have to that story and be able to look back because it exists now in the Columbia Library and the archives where all of our thesis projects are. And you don't get mulligans with that. That's the story you graduated with. It felt like, to me, the right thing to do, and people made it possible. So, you know, I had no regrets, but there were late nights, and there were hard nights, and there were days that I went out to cemeteries, you know, and would stand at the foot of graves of young people that had died, students that were killed. And I would stand at those cemeteries and try and put myself in the shoes of people like you who had gone there to visit those grave sites or taught the people who were buried there. And it was all in a process of being able to better understand you and better understand the other teachers. It wasn't gratuitous. It wasn't for the drama. It was to better understand the psyche of the people that I was going to try to bring to life on the page. What happened with your thesis project? So outside of being in the Columbia Library, which, by the way, I'm going to be at Columbia University in March for a journalism conference, I am well, totally yeah. going to hit up the oh, library. Yeah, it's and right. In the I, and I'm going to find it. But what else, like where else did it end up? You know, I didn't choose to freelance it out. It didn't feel right to me. It felt kind of like I was hijacking the core Parkland story to then 
you know, I didn't really feel that that was authentic to what my subjects were talking about. So I, you know, certainly talked about it. I read an excerpt of it in an address I'd given at Hofstra University. Um, and I've used it as an inspiration for my teaching. When I started at the University of Miami teaching journalism, I was uh, teaching intro to uh, journalism. And I taught based off of a lot of Parkland source materials. So the book Parkland by Dave Cullen, uh, you were kind enough to come and speak, which was just a remarkable opportunity for my students in my first semester to hear from you uh, as a journalist yourself and also an author and a person who lived the story that we were reading in class. Um, I used it, you know, uh, as a way to show them how to put anecdotal leads together and sort of very technical parts of storytelling, but it didn't get published in any kind of publication. I think what it will always have done for me, though, is show up in so many other stories I do. The Parkland lessons I learned about how to interact with people who are survivors of trauma, you know, it, it, it may not be like a war zone, like you guys didn't experience a foreign invasion, but there's so much overlap. I mean, there are so many mutually intelligible concepts about people who are fearful and uncertain or having to move out of their communities or losing loved ones that they'll never see or speak to again. There's so much in common that I think it just shows up for me in like pretty much any story I do that touches on those themes. Do you feel that you learned more about trauma-informed and trauma-sensitive reporting from being the boots on the ground as compared to the class you took with Professor Shapiro? Well, yes. You know, the class I took with Professor Shapiro was extremely helpful for case studies and kind of a scholarly theoretical view on journalism ethics. And we had some very vibrant debates. That was like maybe the most important class we took because ethics shows up in every aspect of journalism, including the questions you ask and how you ask them in an interview to the way that you put stories together, decisions you make. You know, so many journalistic decisions are predicated upon ethical behavior. I, I think it was a really valuable class, but nothing compares to getting out into the field and, you know, doing this. And I think that I took Professor Shapiro's advice and he said, talk to a lot of uh, clinicians before you go. Talk to experts on trauma. So before I ever met you and any Parkland teacher, I sat at the quad at Columbia on the phone with three or four trauma experts, you know, from Parkland, uh, from South Florida, ideally. I think one was in New York, but most were in South Florida. And I said, you know, talk to me about clinical interviewing and techniques I can use to, you know, disarm people. I went and spoke to Azmat Khan and I took her class. This is a Pulitzer Prize winning, brilliant investigative reporter. And, you know, her advice was simple. She's done so much trauma work, you know, and she's done exemplary journalism. But she said, you know, something you really need to understand is if you are sitting down with somebody who's been through some sort of traumatic event and you're spending a prolonged period of time with them, I certainly wouldn't go in and start by asking, tell me about your loved one that was killed. She gave me some very practical and actionable tools and tips, and, you know, asking questions that are able to get somebody to open up and then take them into the experience and hold their hand and walk them through that. And then don't say, thanks very much. You know, have a nice life. Have a nice day. I got what I needed. Take them out of it. It's your responsibility to maybe even think about this, like flying a plane, you know, a, a, a smooth takeoff and then you're at cruising altitude and then bring them to a smooth landing. Take, take them back out of it again, to the extent that you can, because it's less jarring for that person. You know, the advice I was given before I met all of you was to start by saying, Tell me how you became a teacher. And I don't know that I use that advice with everybody, but some people I think I did, you know, tell me how you got into this profession. And that helps you to understand them, but it also gives that person a chance to kind of like start to test the waters and open up a little bit and warm up their conversational muscles before they have to start opening up and unstitching wounds that maybe they thought they'd stitched. So there's all different things and, you know, different things work for different people, but certainly nothing substitutes professional practice. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of our local newsrooms are so strapped for cash and strapped for time that we're sending people out in the local press generally 
when you're in like a small newsroom somewhere and you've got to get a story on the air by, you know, to hit the three o'clock newscast, I think it's hard to really expect that those journalists are trauma informed, but they certainly should be. One of the things I'd like to do in my life is create more resources for local reporters to understand how to do this. I think that is so, so necessary. There are a few local reporters who I will talk to anytime they ask me. One of them is Ari Odzer, who's the NBC Education Beat reporter. He can ask me to jump and I will say how high. Like I will do anything for him. There are others I won't. My cousin, who is a reporter in Buffalo, and I've had him on the podcast now twice. I don't know how like trauma-informed his reporting was before everything at Tops. He has certainly become more trauma-informed and I'm certain has been a resource to other reporters in the area. So I, I do believe that trauma-informed reporting and strategies and lessons and tips and, you know, whatever word you want to use, I think those resources are necessary for local reporters. I hope that you're able to put things together that will be useful. And I'm happy to help. <laughs> happy oh, to help yeah, if you need it. I would it. Certainly be calling upon you to <laughs> contribute. Uh, and we would only be made better by having you involved. Yeah, I've done a lot, you know, just privately. I've attended seminars and we're lucky in my organization at Business Insider. We had a series uh, that some of us were able to sign up for, meet with a trauma clinician and talk about how we can do trauma-informed work and take care of our sources and take care of ourselves in the process. Because, you know, taking care of yourself as a journalist is not a selfish thing. You cannot serve readers or viewers, and you certainly cannot make anyone else feel at ease if you are not in a good sound state of mind and well-being as a reporter. So, you know, that's really important too. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I I, I want to see us do more on this. I want to see this area become better fleshed out. It is unfortunate when things like a shooting at a supermarket, you know, are the necessary catalyst to then, you know, teach people about this. It's terrible that that goes on at all. But we do have to take advantage of every opportunity we can to learn and grow as people and to oftentimes get into these situations without much training, but kind of use our humanity as our North Star and figure it out. You know, nobody sat with me when I was doing my Parkland interviews. I did my conversations with clinicians ahead of time, but there were moments that I thought, you know, oh gosh, someone is breaking down or they're crying. You know, what's the right answer here? How am I going to get through this and not leave them in a lurch and just walk out of here and leave them in a worse position than I found them? That's not really fair. And I really had to kind of soul search in those moments and say, what does my humanity tell me is the right thing to do here? It's not easy, but uh, this job is a privilege and it requires the best of the human spirit to be able to do it well. And we need people to rise to the occasion and prove that they are worthy of this great honor, which it really is to do journalism. It's a great honor. I agree. That's why I've been teaching it for so long. You mentioned that you came to campus with Ashley Kurth who mm -hmm. is my work wife. And clearly you've been at school to speak to my classes. What has it been like for you to come to campus, you know, however many times it's been over the past now six years? Many, many times I've come, I've had the great honor of your inviting me and We've done that several times and I've gone to see Ashley and I've, you know, been around the area and I went a handful of times when I was reporting the story and, you know, walked through the campus and saw everything. You know, it's really changed. In the beginning when I went there, I had this sort of eerie feeling, to be honest with you. And I just felt sad, you know, because there's obviously that beautiful eagle statue with the heart, but it was so new. I mean, it was only within the first year that it had happened, I think. I felt like it was just this eerie feeling. And I thought, gosh, you know, how's the school ever going to come back? And at the time, the building, the freshman building still loomed with this kind of like weird energy and this dark shadow that it was casting over campus. So I'm sure for me going there once, you were feeling that every day. And that is so much more intense and acute for you who saw it before and then saw it through that dark period. But I just remember going there and I was talking to my professor after and he said, what was it like? And I said, it was 
you know, it was strange. It was just this eerie feeling. I felt like I was walking in the trail of some horrible things that had happened. And certainly they had, you know, now I go and it's actually so incredibly hopeful. And I think because I have had the chance to have seen it evolve somewhat, not as much as you, but I was going there in the wake of the tragedy. And now I've been going where there's a whole new cohort of students that thankfully never had to live through that time period. I go there and I see jubilant people in the hallway and I see friend groups that are laughing and talking with each other at the lockers. And I see kids that have their coffee and are excited to be at school. And they're acting like kids that you would expect in any other school in America, you know? And I really reject the word normal because I don't think there is any kind of a normal, but they certainly seem like they are not people who are walking around on a campus where, you know, the worst high school shooting in our country's history had unfolded. And that makes me feel really hopeful. And I got to tell you, when I reported the Parkland story, so many people said to me in the days and weeks after that, including Columbia students that had known I was going there, we were all so aware of what our projects were and supporting each other. And they said, you know, what was it like? Because that school became famous and infamous and notorious, in effect, for being the site of this horrible tragedy. And I said, you know, I got to tell you, this is going to really surprise you, but I'm leaving there feeling like this is one of the most hopeful stories I will ever report. And people said, why and how? How could you say that? You know, 17, 18 were, you know, murdered and cold blood and more have died ever since. And, you know, families destroyed. And I said, because that's what I went in expecting to find. I expected to find acute anguish and I found it. And people that were unable to move beyond in their lives. And in fact, I found people that were picking themselves up and they were showing resilience and they kept going and they formed communities in their classrooms and in the school and they formed communities among friends and they supported each other and they formed communities at Eagles Haven and they had a vision for rebuilding a life. They didn't know where it would go, but they were hoping and they were acting as though they would find a life again. And I said, if people can push through the darkest times, all of us should find great hope and encouragement for how we live our lives and how we rise to the occasion. I left there feeling so incredibly hopeful. And now when I go back, I'm so empowered by students' questions in your class who want to be journalists. I'm empowered by the fact that it really feels back and it feels energetic and it feels like a real school again. I think it's going to be one of those places where everybody who's part of that community will always walk around knowing, yes, this is where that happened. But people are making the decision to not let that define them. And that to me is maybe the most hopeful and empowering thing that I see when I go back year after year. You know, it's funny that you say that because over the past six years, I have said to my students and, you know, really to anyone who will listen, this is something that happened to us, but this does not define us. It rang true when we were trying to scramble and finish the 2018 yearbook. It rings true now at the six-year mark. It will ring true at the 50-year mark when I'm 87 years old, and it will not have defined those 50 years of my life. But it certainly happened and I experienced it and I have grown and changed because of it, but it doesn't define who I am. And well, it's it's important uh, that you said that. You have a choice. I mean, every day people wake up, you have a choice. You have a choice every day if you want to be a person who exemplifies resilience. You know, and I learned from these people what resilience in practice looks like and how when you're facing really, you know, just the worst possible outcomes, you have to find something in your soul if you can find it. Some people can't find it to give yourself the ember or the spark to like have a reason to keep going. We are resilient. I think that we have been through a lot, but I feel like I'm kind of coming through on the other side of it now. And I don't carry all of the weight and the baggage that I did for the first five years. I feel like I'm in a different mindset, like a different looking at it from a different perspective now. And I don't know if that's the case for other, you know, survivors of school shootings, survivors of trauma. I imagine the farther out you get from it, the more your perspective changes. But Speaking speaking on behalf of the community, 
we are we are resilient and we will continue to be because we don't have any other choice. So you do have a choice. You, well, we do. You You're right. Could, you could make the choice to not put in this much effort and to keep going. And a lot of people get knocked down and they stay down. And sometimes that's a choice. And sometimes they just can't find it in themselves to get back up again. And, you know, that is no judgment toward anybody because a lot of us are struggling with a lot of things. And sometimes it really is hard to find the strength to pick yourself up off the mat. So I do think you had a choice. And I think sometimes it also takes time to be able to summon the strength to make the choice to get back up and keep going. The fact that you say that, you know, five, six years on, you're entering a new phase of this or you're developing a new relationship with it or it feels different, you know, doesn't really surprise me because you had to get the kids that were there through the program. You had to learn things about yourself. You had to keep sprinting on their behalf. Then you had to have some time to tend to your own well-being. Then we had COVID, which exacerbated a lot of the feelings that the community was already feeling two years on. Um, you know, and I think you also had to have the distance of time and space to just like allow those wounds to stink a little bit less. And when we're having a conversation, you and I, five, six years from now, you're going to say it feels even differently. It's never going to leave you, you know, but it's always going to be there, but it will feel different over time. And I'm just really pleased that maybe today it feels a little less painful than it did last week or a year ago or three years ago. Um, you know, that's what I want for every person. But I, I, I certainly was touched by the Parkland story. I, you know, I say this to people all the time that I know from that community. I'm so sorry that we had to know each other under these circumstances. In another life, you know, I'd like to know you through other circumstances. And if we never knew each other, and that was the price for all of this not happening, that would be okay too. I am better for having you in my life, but I am sorry that the reason that we found each other was this horrible tragedy. But we can all do our part by moving forward and having conversations like these or doing ethical journalism or inspiring other people to go out and talk about resilience or mental health in their reporting. You know, it just is. That's what it is. That's what happened in this dimension of the universe that we happen to occupy. We have it now. We have to make the best of it. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to follow Teachers Unified to End Gun Violence on Instagram and threads at Teachers Unify and follow the podcast on both platforms at Teachers Unify PC.